Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Health Power. On July 16th, the emergency 988 number, which is the equivalent of 911 for mental health, went live in the U.S. I think this is such an incredible thing. Now, when people call, text or chat 988, their call will be routed to trained local counselors who are part of the existing National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network. They're better equipped to handle mental and behavioral health issues in their community than 911 dispatchers. And these counselors can provide local resources and referrals when people need it most. And this is so key. And here to join us to talk about this is the wonderful Margie Balfour, MD, PhD, psychiatrist and chief clinical quality officer at Connections Health Solutions, the leading innovator in behavioral health crisis care. Dr. Balfour is the co-author of the Crisis Roadmap. And it is the blueprint that contains all aspects of an ideal crisis system, along with measurable performance criteria that communities can use for ongoing assessment of their progress. And I'm just so thrilled to have her here. Dr. Balfour, welcome to Health Power. Thanks for having me. I think this is so fantastic. Mental health care is so needed. And the fact that now there's a number for it, just it's such a huge relief. Can you give us a little bit of background on this and how this came to be? Sure. So... You know, in in the U.S., you know, currently we kind of have this separate system for for mental health emergencies. We all know about calling nine one one for medical emergencies, and if you call nine one one, you get an ambulance with trained healthcare people who know how to take care of you. They take you to an emergency room where you know it's all equipped to deal with your emergency. Whereas if you have a mental health emergency, people typically will up until July. We would typically call 911. And then law enforcement are still the default first responders. And then people end up, you know, it's just a bad situation. A quarter of officer-involved shooting deaths are involving a mental health emergency. Um, People end up in emergency rooms where most of them actually don't have psychiatric care capability. And they end up just waiting for hours, sometimes even days, to be sent to a psych hospital somewhere else. And so everyone knew there has to be a better way. And so a first step towards having an equitable system for mental health emergencies was having a a number to call where you could actually get someone on the line who could help you. And so the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a network of a couple hundred local call centers that have been doing evidence-based suicide counseling. Um, it was created around, I think, 2005. And so what the, the 988 does is it makes a single three-digit number that you can call in an emergency, just like 911, um, and it will connect to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And you'll get a trained counselor uh, you know, who's trained in risk assessment and suicide counseling, who is able to listen, provide support, de-escalate, and then get people connected to some of those local resources. And most calls like that can be resolved over the phone. Um, so 988 went live on July 16th. One, um, there's been a lot of funding put into it, into strengthening that network to be able to handle the increased call volume. And it also does text and chat. So a lot of people, you know, like I don't like talking on the phone. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like talking on the phone these days. <laughs> yeah. And so you can, um, you know, you can text it and you can also get that trained 
uh, behavioral health counselor who can who can work with you over text or chat. Um, the next step, though, because it really is this first step into having a whole system right. for people with mental health emergencies. Because today you can't think about nine one one without thinking about the um, all of the response that goes with it. And so the next step is building out that system. So it has really has the potential to catalyze this whole transformation in mental health crisis services, kind of how 911, which started in the 60s, 1968 was the first 911 call. And it took it took a while to build all of that. But um, we have the opportunity to do that now for for mental health. Yeah, it's really exciting. You know, it, it reminds me of a story, a very sad story of, of a woman that I know, and her son is on the autism spectrum and has severe anxiety. And, and he was really upset and he was on the roof and, and the mother called you know, 911. And then the police came and they got him down. And he was like, super like went into this full blown panic attack. And they're holding him down, which and so he spit at the officer. And now he has an assault and battery charge. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you do not understand mental health at all. You do not understand that this kid purposely spit at you. Like it makes me so angry. So is that kind of the next step to have a team to go out? Because if it's something that can't be helped with over the phone or text or chat and there's a kid like on the roof or there's something, is that what you mean when you're saying like building it up? Yeah. So, um, and that, um, report with the big long name, um, the roadmap to the ideal crisis system actually lays out what that ideal system should look like. And, it's not just um, theoretical. There's places where it's actually happening in Arizona, where, where we are, um, is actually being looked at as a national model because over the last several decades, the state has really invested in, in building this crisis system. And now it, and it, many of the principles outlined in that roadmap to the ideal system are in place in Arizona. And so, for example, in Tucson, our all of our law enforcement has – basic mental health training, mental health first aid. And then more than half of them have more extensive training called crisis intervention team training, which is a 40 hour training that has role playing on de-escalation. So they know things like how to de-escalate someone like, like your friend and and they know things like how holding someone down like that is going to make it worse. And it's what you don't want to do. But then there's a whole system in place to prevent law enforcement from being dispatched in the first place. So if you call the crisis line, which is now you know going to be 988, um, you get your trained mental health counselors on the phone. They're able to resolve about 80% of the crisis on the phone. And they're able to do that using the things I talked about before, like mental health counseling and safety planning, but also because our system is so coordinated, they have a database of crisis appointments in the local clinics because the clinics are required to put their appointments in there. So if part of what it takes to resolve your crisis in the middle of the night is to know that you have an appointment tomorrow at 1130, then they can do that. For those that can't be resolved on the phone, they are able to dispatch one of about a dozen mobile teams that cover our county, and they respond within an hour. Um, they're typically two-person teams of two clinicians or a clinician and a peer who is someone who themselves has, has lived experience with mental illness. And when they do a face-to-face assessment out in the field and, and do an intervention, they are able to resolve about 70% of those out in the field without having to, to bring somebody anywhere. But for those who need a still higher level, we have specialized crisis facilities like the facilities that we run. So in, in Tucson, we have the Crisis Response Center. Um, we also 
run the urgent psychiatric center up in Phoenix. And these are places where anybody can walk in um, or people can be transferred from emergency rooms or mobile teams can bring them or the police can bring them. And they see a psychiatrist nurse practitioner within about 90 minutes. Um, we have an urgent care area where people can just walk in and get med refills and get things taken care of before it escalates to a more severe crisis. And we have our 23-hour observation unit where people stay overnight and are cared for by an interdisciplinary team that's working on stabilizing their crisis, getting them connected to the outpatient resources that they need. There are, again, peers with their own lived experience with mental illness who are able to, you know, they do groups with them and are able to engage with them. And then we get them connected to aftercare. So about 60%, 60 to 70% of all the people who go through the crisis response center are able to get their crisis resolved and not have to go to a hospital. Um, so instead get their, you know, they continue their, their aftercare out in the community and in clinics or, you know, substance use treatment, et cetera. And at every point along that whole system is designed to make it, if if law enforcement is involved, to make it easy for them to divert that person to treatment rather than um, have them, you know, rather than, than them having to take care of it. So the 911 call center for the, for the city, they have staff from that crisis line that are so who sit in 911 shoulder to shoulder with the 911 call takers. And so if it's a mental health call that comes into 911, they divert about 1500 calls to the crisis line, to the 988 line. And then that can go through that whole clinical pathway. Um, if police are in the field because they've encountered somebody with mental illness, and if they call for a mobile team, the mobile teams have to respond faster. I said they have an hour to reach me, like if I'm in my house in crisis, they have half that time if, if the police need them in the field. And then our crisis center is really set up to make it easy for law enforcement to do the right thing. They've been trained on de-escalating people and bringing them to treatment, but you have to make it easy for them to actually do that. And in many communities, if an officer goes to an emergency room, they have to wait for hours with that person. Oh, and wow. so it's a lot easier. I mean, they're busy and most law enforcement agencies, especially after COVID are understaffed and they're getting competing calls for robberies and, you know, all other kinds of stuff. And so we get them in and out in less than 10 minutes. And so that way it's actually the, it's easier than bringing someone to jail even um, to drop someone off with us. And so we see about, uh, um, about 10,000 adults and about 2000 kids per year at, at our crisis center. And what are the things, what are some of the things that bring them in? A lot of people are coming in because they're having suicidal thoughts. Um, we see, we also, um, you know, we have people who maybe have never interacted with the mental health system before and the stresses of COVID and the stresses of life are, um, they don't know what else, you know, they, they, it's, it's hard. The mental health system just in general is confusing for people to figure out how to access. And so if you don't know where you, know, you, you have your, even if you have insurance, you look at the website for whatever your insurance company is. And there's like a list of phone numbers and you start calling around. And a lot of those people aren't taking patients yep. anymore yeah. or they um, have a six week wait or something like that. So for people who walk in a lot of times it's because they are, don't know where else to go, which is exactly why we're there. Um, for people who were brought in, a lot of um, times it's people who are 
again, having thoughts of suicide, um, people who are, um, you know, we have a lot of substance use, you know, we were, um, you know, kind of, you know, the opioid epidemic hit us hard, like, like many places in the, in the country, but out here, we actually see a lot of, um, a lot of methamphetamine. So, you know, when, um, people are struggling with that, um, that's one thing that makes us different is that a lot of crisis centers don't want to take people who are really highly agitated and highly acute um, because people who are, you know, suffering from substance use um, you know, issues, and especially if they're intoxicated at the time, they can be really, um, you know, really agitated. And a lot of places will say, well, that's, that's too acute for us. They need to go to the emergency room and, what happens in the emergency room, which is completely not equipped to handle folks like that, is they often end up getting like restrained on a gurney in a hallway or something. And so, or people who are struggling with um, illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar who may be manic or psychotic and hearing voices and paranoid and, you know, who may fight with police or, or someone because they're scared. Um, those types of people often end up in emergency rooms because um, a lot of crisis or, or many mental health facilities will say they're too acute for us right now. And so we actually want those people. We think that those are the folks that are most in need of specialized care. We don't use any security um, because we have very highly trained um, our mental health technicians and our peer supports and, and the rest of our staff. And so um, that's another thing that, is very important to our mission is that we take everyone and never turn anyone away. Yeah. And I think like, I mean, the, the putting someone on a gurney who's agitated is just going to make everything worse. Just mm-hmm. like, a, you yeah. know, the example of the cop holding down the kid. And I think mm-hmm. that's why this is so key. And it sounds like you got a lot going on in Arizona and in the, in the Tucson area, you said. Tucson, the whole state really. Wow. Um, I'm based in Tucson and down and, but we also, I mean, our roots are, um, up in Phoenix, actually, at Connections. And so we operate a very large crisis center up there called the Urgent Psychiatric Center. Um, down in Tucson, we've been getting a lot of national attention because what we do doesn't happen in a vacuum. Right. And the Tucson police are a very uh, mental health progressive police agency. And so in addition, kind of this, the gold standard for police agencies is to have that crisis intervention team training. Yeah. But, um, and, and Tucson police does that, but they go beyond that. And so they have, in addition to having a a large portion of their officers who have that training. So anytime, if you're ever to, to request, if if you had to call 911, you can request a, a CIT trained officer. But in addition to that, they have specialized mental health teams that do nothing but that, um, they have, for example, um, a co-responder teams where it is an officer who is paired with a peer. So someone who has their own lived experience, and this is a, a substance use response team or substance use resource team. Um, and they have these peers are in recovery from their own substance use con- you know, challenges. And they go out and do outreach. They follow up with um cases where there's been overdoses they have the discretion to not arrest people for having paraphernalia and and drugs and things like that and and they divert them to treatment instead and they've been you know they've been tracking their data and the data shows that um it's actually easier and faster for the officers to do what they call a deflection um and that they're not getting a lot of repeat people so people are 
or accepting treatment and going into treatment and not just, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I'll go to treatment and then, and then you know, not. Um, so they've also got a homeless outreach team that has a, um, again, a peer who's a homeless recovery peer, and they do a lot of outreach out in our parks. Um, and they're looking to connect people to the services they need and the treatment they need rather than arrest them. And so a lot of um, the, you know, the, like I said, the, the whole Arizona model is kind of the look being looked at as a national model. And then in addition down here in Tucson, you've got just a really progressive law enforcement agency. And so our partnerships um, have, you know, have really been, been special. I'm really impressed. I'm looking at this, you know, treating people right when they need it, uh, providing compassionate mental health services 24 hours a day, every day of the week. And then on the bottom of the page, it says we accept all individuals with or without health insurance. One of the things that makes the Arizona model work is it's set up in a way to be like a safety net where everyone is entitled to crisis services in Arizona. So at the state level, I mean, this is one of the things we talk about in the roadmap um, is that, you know, a, a lot of you know, people have been putting stuff out around what are the clinical best practices. And so the roadmap contains a lot of that, but it also talks about what is the oversight and financing and coordination structure that you need to make a system like this work as a coordinated system. And that's a big piece of it is ensuring that there is, uh, there's coverage so that everyone is, is in, able to get crisis services. So at the state level, it's, it's done through our Medicaid department, which is called access in Arizona. And so our state Medicaid department, they blend together funding from a variety of sources. It, whereas in many states, it would be different agencies, like that some of them have the money that the federal government gives states for, for mental health. And then there may be like another department that has the Medicaid funds and another department that has county and local funds. Well, in Arizona, all those funds get kind of braided together by the state Medicaid agency. And then they contract out for a regional behavioral health authority to oversee the services in a given region. And then that regional behavioral health authority subcontracts with all of us providers. So that whole system that I just described um, with the calls, the crisis line, and then the mobile teams, and then the crisis centers, those are all different agencies doing that care, but it's all coordinated. And, because of how the funding is all kind of put together, everyone that we see has like of some kind of funding source. And we actually get funded up front as sort of a firehouse model. So like we're not getting, they're not paying me to see a patient at two in the morning and then send a bill and then get paid like traditional healthcare. They're, they buy capacity basically. So, um, we are funded up front so that we can have people available at two in the morning if someone happens to come in like that particular time. And then on the back end, all the, all the financing is reconciled so that everyone has a funding source. Now, one important advocacy point though, is all of that great stuff that we have. If somebody with private insurance comes through, they get all of the services that I just described. But at the end of the day, what funds their crisis services is the pot of money that is for indigent, uninsured, unfunded people because private insurance currently does not cover uh, crisis services. And so that's something that's a parity, mental health parity issue that needs to be addressed. Unfortunately, there are some bills in Congress that are kind of winding their way through. Um, 
that address that, that require all health plans, whether they be employer-based or, you know, ACA plans or whatever, um, to cover crisis services, because it really is a parity issue. Oh, yes. Um, you know, they cover your emergency room stay, so they should cover your, your crisis stay. Oh, completely. You know, when you decided to be a psychiatrist, was this something that you had in your mind that you wanted to, you know, do this great work in the community? Or was it just, I, w- I, I was just interested in psychiatry, and then you discovered this? Give us a little background on that. Yeah, actually, um, you know, sometimes, like, I, I didn't start off with this mission, I'm going to be a psychiatrist, but sometimes looking back, you see that, well, things kind of were pointing me in that direction. So my mom is a um, retired psychiatric nurse, and she would come home and tell us stories of, of the people that she had been taking care of. And it was just really interesting and fascinating. Um, and then she um, also would, uh, she had a, a thing where she would go to group homes. And I was a little kid, sometimes she'd be taking me along because, you know, she couldn't leave me alone. So she had to take me somewhere. And so, you know, so she would go around to the group homes and check on their people's medications and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, when I um, actually was going to be a, a researcher, I wasn't planning on going to med school. And then I just kind of realized that the point of all of the research was to actually improve, you know, people's health care and then did a combined degree. So I did an MD and a PhD degree, but my uh, PhD was um, in neuroscience. And I was looking at dopamine systems um, in rats' brain, brain circuits. It's a very basic science type research. But then when I did my, but I loved, you know, um, I loved my psychiatric rotations. And, you know, kind of the opening lines of Anna Karenina is like, to paraphrase it, it's, you know, all happy families are alike. But the unhappy families are all different in their own, you know, different way. Yeah. And it's kind of like that. Like, um, you know, you treat blood pressure and that's, you know, hypertension is kind of hypertension, but no two people are depressed the same way. No two people, you know, if they have psychosis or psychotic the same way. And so, you know, the, really the, the purpose is to improve people's lives. So, um, so that's why I ended up going into psychiatry. And then when I did my residency, my uh, first rotation was the psychiatric emergency room at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, night shift. So you oh, can imagine wow. that was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They get 10,000 people a month through that whole trauma ER. Oh my and then God. there's a, there's a specialized psychiatric component of it. And so of course, I mean, you see everything there and I loved it. And again, I was, I was planning on being a researcher, but then I loved the psyche ER so much. I'd moonlight in there in my off time and kind of realized that the whole, like all these people were in the emergency room because they weren't getting what they needed in the community. And so I kind of morphed from research to, um, quality improvement and interested in the question of, we know like in our research ivory tower, what is good care, but people don't get it. How do you have a healthcare system work so that people actually get the care that they need? And that's kind of how I ended up. So even though I have my um, research background, my role at connections is I oversee quality improvement and we've, the crisis field is relatively new um, and there's not a lot of uh, standards and um, 
you know, guidelines. And so that's one thing I've been working on quite a bit. Um, there weren't um, standard outcome measures for, you know, definitions of success. What is quality mental health care yeah. or quality crisis care? So part of my work at Connections was we created a standard outcome measure set um, so that we could compare services within our own facilities. And then some of that's been adopted as a national standard. And so that's, um, that's kind of my long circuitous route to doing what I do. Oh, I think it's fantastic. Was there anything that you wanted to add today? I mean, of course, I want to get the website and all the information, but anything else that you wanted to touch on today, Dr. Balfour? It's, it's been really, really great. It's such important information. Sometimes it's hard to, uh, when you look at a system like what we have in Arizona or have in Tucson, um, that seems like, well, gee, like we don't have that. And where do you even start? So just wanted to make the point that that didn't happen overnight. You know, it was a, um, you know, a 20 year evolution. And, you know, the crisis observation model that I spoke of was pioneered by our two co-founders at Connections back in the 90s. So it's taken a long time to get to, to where we are. The crisis roadmap, um, the, the roadmap to the ideal crisis system report is something that um, was created by kind of a think tank of psychiatrists and other thought leaders to lay out what does a ideal system look like and how do you get there? And so um, it's available at crisisroadmap.com. And not only does it describe all these things, but it has tools in there to help communities get started. So uh, there's a report card to kind of um, sort of rate where you're at currently and help plan where you're going to go. Um it has steps for community leaders to take because you have to start somewhere right? and, and then, you know, get there. And the, the other good thing to realize is that this is the time to start working on this. So 988 has catalyzed a lot of interest in crisis services. And it's also catalyzed a lot of funding between that and the pandemic relief packages and some of the police reform movements that are really promoting alternatives to law enforcement. There's in, there's increasingly more funding out there. Every single state got a planning grant to start to plan mobile and then the next sort of iteration of crisis services. So somebody in every state is thinking about this and planning it. There's um, there's about $400 million of increased mental health funding oh, wow. in over the last couple of uh, last year or two from all of the various you know, pandemic packages and things like that. So there is, and there's, like I said, and there's other bills that are uh, pending in, in Congress. And so now is the time. It's like this really unprecedented opportunity to start to build out and expand crisis services. Well, I'm so glad that you're doing the work that you're doing. It's really commendable and we just need more. We need to clone you. <laughs> we need like you everywhere, Dr. Balfour. Dr. Balfour, thank you so much for coming on Health Power. Everybody be sure to, so they can go to connectionshs.com. And also, can you give us the other website again? And the other one is crisisroadmap.com. Terrific. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.